0: As you all know, George Floyd was killed at the end of May in 2020. And out of that, Black Lives Matter, grassroots organizations launched protests. Um, And these protests swept the United States. They went global. Um, And the focus, of course, was police violence, particularly against people of color and Black men. There was also an agenda about addressing economic disparities that afflict uh, communities of color. The searing question that has uh, kind of uh, haunted uh, these protests and that lingers with us today is, will there be meaningful change? And this question is not idle or comes out of nowhere. It comes out of a long history. So the topic for today is a conversation with Gary Cunningham about tangible change that would address the economic and wealth uh, deficits in the black indigenous uh, communities and the communities of color. Obviously the coronavirus has made this an even more urgent conversation. Unemployment is higher among communities of color and among uh, black Americans who also are dying at three times the rate from the coronavirus than whites. It is a great pleasure to introduce Gary Cunningham. Um, Mr. Cunningham is currently the president and CEO of Prosperity Now, which uh, works to open paths to financial stability, wealth, and prosperity for all. It was the pioneering organization for the um, earned income tax credit for those of you who who follow um, uh, policy um, and as part of its long history of trying to increase income and economic equity um, among lower income and disadvantaged communities. Most recently, uh, Prosperity Now has helped to direct funding from the CARES Act, which was passed by Congress and signed by President Trump to provide funds uh, for the economic crisis that uh, quickly swept over our businesses and our communities. Um, They've been, prosperity now has been an important part of the distribution of those funds to community developed financial institutions, um, particularly to support black owned businesses. Mr. Cunningham is an expert on job creation and racial wealth equity. Um, before coming to Prosperity Now, he was the president and CEO of the Metropolitan Economic Development Association in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, which has been an innovator in minority business development. Um, before that, Mr. Cunningham had been a foundation leader. He'd been an administrator in county and city governments in Minnesota and has a strong uh, reputation and is widely admired. Mr. Cunningham's background is he has a bachelor's degree from Metropolitan State University, a master's of public administration from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government, and he was a senior fellow at the Humphrey School of um, Public Affairs. And let me just say a word about myself. I am a faculty at the Humphrey School at the University of Minnesota. I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance. And have worked with um, a group of folks in our center to put on today's program and programs that you've seen in the past. Mr. Cunningham, thank you for joining us. Uh, um, Professor
1: Jacobs, thank you for having me. It is such a great pleasure to be uh, back virtually at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. I, uh, I am so indebted to this school and what it's able to do Uh, for me and all of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of students over the years. Uh, And uh, just want to have a shout out for such a great institution making a difference in our community.
0: Thank you very much. You wrote recently uh, the following. Many of us struggle to understand why we haven't made much progress over the last 50 years on racial justice. You go on to say that uh, research has shown that African Americans are worse off today than in 1968 across many socioeconomic measures. And then you say, we write report after report documenting the levels of racial, economic, and social inequalities. We march, vote, and protest to achieve incremental change. My question to you is, how would you describe this frustrating uh, situation in terms of the economic uh, situation and circumstances of black Americans.
1: Well, uh, thank you again. And uh, let me start by saying, uh, uh, part of that quote, uh, 1968, really comes from uh, the work of Robert Putnam, who just recently uh, published a book called Upswell that actually documents the fact that African-Americans are no better off today than they were in 1968. And in fact, that they did a lot better Uh, Black people uh, prior to 1970, prior to the Civil Rights Acts that went into effect, uh, and that most of that was from their own self-efficacy of moving out of the South uh, and moving to the North uh, where there were jobs and opportunity. Uh, And so the the question uh, that we have to ask ourselves is what happened? And according to Putnam, and I, I actually agree with him, uh, that there was a, a huge rise and a shift in uh, the uh, the uh, uh, well-being of Black people uh, that shifted uh, because of black, white Black backlash uh, that we're seeing today. Uh, even uh, the storming of the Capitol, uh, I could certainly put in that frame of white backlash uh, to uh, Black progress in this country. And so, if we're going to have to address Uh, the issue of race in this country, we're gonna have to build uh, the wealth uh, and the uh, inclusion of not only African-Americans but all BIPOC uh, communities uh, so that we can have a democracy that actually works for all of us, that we can have a system of economic capitalism that actually includes all of us. So I I would say that, and I can go into some uh, background here, but, but this history is pretty clear. Uh, and, and the fact that people are no better off, black people are no better off today than they were in 1968, is really a testament to failed policy. Some of that policy not only affects black people, but also affects uh, uh, low income and moderate income whites as well. Meaning the shift under the Reagan administration that occurred and how re- uh, tax resources are allocated, uh, that really was a trickle down theory Uh, has been pretty much debunked, meaning uh, uh, productivity didn't increase across the frame, and economic inequalities for middle-class whites, uh, uh, BIPOC communities, uh, and low-income whites actually uh, got worse. Uh, And in fact, economic mobility, meaning the the ability to come from one group uh, economically to the next, uh, is much worse off in the United States today, than it, than it was uh, back in the uh, 50s and 60s. So we're, we've we got some issues to grapple with within this country if we're gonna have a country that works equally well for everyone.
0: Just wanna to say to folks who are not familiar with the acronym BIPOC, it stands for Black, Indigenous and People of Color and is now widely used uh, to describe the diversity of identities in America. Mr. Cunningham, you've just uh, laid out a terrific thesis. It's, quite comprehensive. I wonder if we could go back and just unpack it a little bit. Could you give us just a sense when you look at the disparities between, um, let's just simplify this, Black Americans and whites, what the situation is in terms of unemployment rates, wealth, income, just some general you know, context.
1: Well, let me give you uh, one frame. Uh, and that is uh, a recent study showed that the, uh, if blacks uh, were to have parity with whites in terms of wealth, the GDP in this country uh, would go up by $1.5 billion. And this is a study done by the uh, consulting firm McKinsey. So this isn't like some way out data out there. This is really uh, real. Uh, that study further goes on to say that uh, African-Americans uh, wealth, the gap, between whites, uh, meaning we're not talking about income, we're talking about wealth. The wealth gap between whites and uh, African-Americans is eight times, Uh, uh, and and these differentiations uh, between black wealth and white wealth uh, uh, don't uh, go across the whole group of African-Americans because there is differentiations within uh, the African-American community, just like there is in the white community, Overall, we see some huge pockets. Uh, When I was in Minnesota and I was with the Metropolitan Council, we did a study that uh, the the, the council staff did a study uh, that really showed that uh, if you looked at Minnesota specifically, uh, you'd see some uh, huge gaps in income that weren't explained by education, that weren't explained by uh, 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 the uh, language, wasn't explained by family structure, was et cetera. So these gaps that exist are structural in nature. uh, And in order to address them, we're gonna have to have a structural solution.
0: When you talk about wealth, this is a category and there's a whole lot of things under it. Um, And just to unpack that a little bit, What do you mean by wealth? What does that?
1: Well, uh, wealth, uh, assets, and that's what I mean by wealth, is uh, someone's debt uh, uh, minus uh, what they are able to accumulate in property or stocks or other uh, assets. Uh, and so when you subtract those two, you have a wealth quotient, and that's what, that's what I mean, meaning, uh, you know, uh, for example, uh, the Federal Reserve finished a study uh, about a year or so ago that showed that, you know, the average American uh, in this country doesn't have enough wealth to last uh, uh, three months. Right. And so meaning that uh, by the end of that three months, if you didn't have other income coming in to actually support yourself, uh, you would be totally broke. Uh, and so it's not just African-Americans. I want to say this. It is also whites that are suffering under these same conditions uh, in that we have uh, uh, basically have a stratified society that most of the wealth, 50% of the wealth is held in the hands of a very few people in this country. And that dynamic creates a dynamic where we can't have a, a, a society that actually works for everyone.
0: You've heard over the, over the years uh, some of the explanations that have been offered for this. Things like, um, you know, Blacks don't work as hard. Black, uh, quote unquote, deviant behavior explains uh, some of these differentials um, that Blacks don't have um, a kind of a culture of saving. How do you respond to those sort of uh, critiques?
1: Well, at first, I start off by saying that um, the uh, idea that African-Americans are somehow different than whites is is an idea I think has been debunked uh, uh, many years ago. and so given the same circumstances, similar uh, access, to, uh, access to opportunity, similar access to education, et cetera, Blacks actually do as well as whites on every measure. So those, those, those uh, uh, are, are excuses. Not only that, but you know, if you start off from, from a position, you know, from the original position, if you start off uh, and you uh, don't have access uh, to the same things everyone else has in this country, uh, you're not going to do as well. Uh, and that, that is, that is uh, uh, very clear. Uh, I would argue that it is, in part, these societal um, dynamics, meaning segregation, uh, the issue of redlining, the issue of discrimination in the housing market, uh, p- uh, public policies that have uh, been uh, favored uh, whites over other people of color, particularly African-Americans, have created the dynamics that we have. Julius Wilson, uh, the noted uh, Harvard uh, social scientist, uh, basically describes several things that happened in the Black community, one of which was uh, uh, the issue of work disappearing. So when African-Americans moved to the North, uh, uh, they actually had jobs. They had the highest marriage rate in the country. Uh, But uh, after the Rust Belt happened and America became a uh, consumer instead of a producer nation, you've seen a huge shift in African-American male employment. Uh, That shift, along with, I believe, welfare policy, and that welfare policy actually drove uh, African-American men out of the house. There was a rule, and that rule really said that if you were uh, an African-American man and the woman in the house was receiving welfare, you couldn't live in the house. You couldn't be in the house. You couldn't be the parent to those children. So the dynamics of social policy actually have dri- driven some of the outcomes for African-Americans. But also you had you know, uh, this issue of uh, integration. And the downside of integration was that there was a brain drain from the African-American community, meaning that many of the African-Americans that were actually affluent and had networks and capacity actually moved out of communities uh, and moved to the suburbs uh, in the early 60s and 70s. And you've seen a bifurcation within an African-American community. And so groups that are isolated, that are, uh, that are uh, segregated, Uh, And that's in every city in this country, but also you could look at Europe and the dynamics around the ghettos in in Europe. These dynamics of, of, of social outcomes based on how the society treats individuals are important indicators for how people act in the society. If you don't have any faith that this society is going to provide you with freedom, justice, and equality, if you don't believe in the system can actually provide Uh, uh, At entry for yourself, you're not going to participate in that system very well, I would argue. And and that is a logical conclusion that many uh, African-Americans have reached.
0: You have done a lot of work um, on entrepreneurialism within the Black community, Uh, both when you're at the Metropolitan Economic Development uh, Program here in Minneapolis, and now at Prosperity Now. What do you find about the the potential the the practice of entrepreneurial activity the consequences of it in the work you've done
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so uh, there's a study out of the University of Washington Business School uh, by uh, William Bransford and he uh, conducted a ten year analysis of income data uh, be- uh, on the gap. Uh, the, and now this isn't the asset gap, this is the income gap between white families and black families. And what he found in that 10 year uh, panel study was that uh, African-Americans that worked for someone else, the gap got wider in that 10 year period for those families. Those families that had entrepreneurs in those families actually closed the gap completely on average. Uh, and this is backed up by work by Robert Farley at the University of California, Santa Cruz, who's probably one of the preeminent uh, 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 professors on the issue of of entrepreneurship in communities of color. He actually did a study that showed that uh, adding a entrepreneur to a black family increased the assets of that family by 600% on average. He also found that true to be uh, that uh, gains for Latino families and women that were single head of households. So, this issue of, of assets, when I was at MEDA, we actually looked at going back uh, 10 years of data on MEDA clients, and MEDA actually worked with entrepreneurs of color. Uh, and we found that um, while the rate of home ownership in Minnesota for African Americans, for example, is 24%, among that group of entrepreneurs, Uh, the gap was uh, almost completely closed over that 10-year period that we looked at. So this issue of building wealth through entrepreneurship uh, is critical uh, if we're gonna close the wealth gap in this country. Uh, The the issue with it though, there's some issues. So I don't wanna put it out as a panacea uh, because there's some issues. One is uh, 97% of entrepreneurs of color are uh, below, their businesses are below a million dollars in revenue. So many of these uh, 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 businesses are storefronts, are very small, and very much subsistence businesses. So, uh, you know, that same uh, proportion is 30 to 40 percent of white-owned businesses are over a million dollars in revenue. Uh, and so the, the question is, is how can you get to scale with those businesses? How do you grow those businesses? And then what are the uh, businesses that uh, entrepreneurs of color are in? Meaning uh, many of them are in uh, businesses that don't have, uh, that, that, that have a lack of barrier to entry. So you see a lot of restaurants, you see a lot of barbershops, you see a lot of beauty shops et cetera, because of the low barrier, meaning it, it doesn't require a lot of capital to get into those businesses, uh, uh, et cetera. Uh, and so the question for us is how do we actually transform that system so that there uh, is more revenue, more profit, and more availability to markets? Uh, a study, uh, a disparity study done across the country Uh, So the the data in Minnesota is very much similar to the data around the country shows that the state of Minnesota uh, actually uh, has more uh, minority firms certified uh, to participate in procurement, as an example, and, you know, the state spends, what, uh, you know, somewhere around uh, $2 trillion a year or something like that. but that they are the least ones to get contracts from the state of Minnesota. So so there's something in the system that creates the dynamics, even though everybody wants the better outcomes, uh, we're not getting them, right? And so so the resource allocation of even when entrepreneurs of color get in the stream of the system, they still can't participate at an even pace. Access to capital. Uh, And I've worked with a number of bankers throughout the country and uh, certainly believe that there are many good hearted people in the banking industry that want to do the right thing. But when you look at access to capital for people of color, uh, there's something wrong. The Federal Reserve's done numerous studies that show that uh, 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 people of color don't participate in our financial systems and structures as a whole, but entrepreneurs, in addition, don't get access to the capital they need to grow. Uh, and this is like uh, illogical, meaning uh, it's against the ethos of our capitalist system not to get capital where it needs to go to those entrepreneurs that actually uh, that can can use it. Uh, and because they're in the marketplace, just like you talked about earlier, Larry, this issue of stereotypes of uh, black people not being able to, uh, you know, that they're, they, they're lazy or this, that, and the other, that exists in the banking market as well, meaning the uh, uh, the the signal in the marketplace to an entrepreneur of color is that you're more risky, right? Even though uh, CDFIs in the Twin Cities and across the country are lending to these same entrepreneurs and, and their loan loss is better in many cases than what the banking industry has with its regular customers. Uh, so this question of them being at risk is a myth, is a stereotype that gets projected in the system and creates that, uh, outcomes we have, just like there's stereotypes within the uh, workforce, meaning uh, uh, the signal in the workforce uh, is some of those signals go on skin color, and therefore people end up not hiring people of color because of their own stereotypes about people of color being the bottom of the barrel of the, of the labor
0: market, as an example. Great. I just want to give a shout out to folks who heard you talk about a CD, excuse me, a a CDFI, which is a community developed financial institution. Um, And it's, it it encompasses a whole variety of different types of institutions that are not driven by the profit motive, but are driven by the social responsibility uh, to help communities and to create economic development within those communities. So it's a, it's kind of a, a parallel financial set of institutions. They often do work with profit motive uh, banks and and other firms. Uh, Mr. Cunningham, I want to come back to you um, on a broad question. Um, I started off talking about the the deep frustration uh, that so little has changed over the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is palpable, uh, I think, among Americans who are really concerned about the racial disparities um, that we have, which is we've got several different models out there of how to bring about that change. One model is a form of um, democratic socialism that talks about a fairly massive expansion of government um, to take over functions that are currently being performed by the market. You have talked about capitalism, kind of market oriented systems the private sector. How do you think about these these two alternatives? Um, uh, I mean, it, it, well, let me leave it to you. (laughs)
1: Um, So I I think uh, uh, on the extremes, both of them lead to dead ends. Meaning on the one hand, uh, you know, just having systems uh, that are driven uh, by government entities. We've seen uh, in other places around the world that that, uh, meaning those uh, five-year planning processes and uh, not having market forces that are actually driving things actually don't lead you to better place, uh, better conclusions. And that's been pretty well uh, shown throughout history. On the other hand, uh, having a system of capitalism where winner take all and uh, uh, you know, there is a lot of discussion going on both in Europe and here in the country is what is the future of this system uh, that has created these uh, uh, significant inequalities? Uh, I would argue that the, that the path is somewhere in the middle between those two extremes. Uh, I do think that there is um, definitely a place in that we know that uh, the structure of the tax system we know that the structure of, of how resources are allocated matter, uh, and that in order to address these horrendous economic inequalities, we're going to have to do something uh, if we're going to uh, address them in our lifetimes. Uh, Prosperity Now has done research that shows that if we do nothing, uh, it will take 229 years for Blacks uh, to, ga- to gather the same wealth that whites have today. Uh, so that, it means that there needs to be some interventions, uh, and that I'd say there are areas that the market has totally failed, uh, uh, particularly if you look at the issue of affordable housing uh, within this country. That's a failed market uh, because there's, there's, um, there's uh, uh, people that could utilize that market that can't access housing, as an example. Uh, and so we're going to have to do something pretty drastic. And this country has done some pretty drastic things in the past. So if we look at uh, you know, uh, this country actually opened up the frontier and gave uh, property uh, to individuals that settled in this country. And then they created uh land grant institutions to train and uh, teach them how to farm. Uh, these are huge systemic changes that transformed America at the expense of Native Americans, I might add. Uh, uh, and then we uh, had the New Deal after the Gilded Age. Uh, and, that, and, and, and that New Deal actually transformed and created the middle class, created the highest productivity in the nation's history, uh, and, uh, but that didn't include everybody. Uh, not everybody was included in uh, the GI Bill. Not everybody was included in the, the uh, home, uh, 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 federal home loan program. Uh, and so th- that's what created the economic inequality that we see today is those economic Uh, things that happened. And then we had a a system that actually criminalized uh, Blackness, meaning uh, 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 there were studies out of Prudential in the early 1900s that actually began the framing of Black criminality in this country that led to uh, the war on uh, drugs, that led to criminalizing African Americans within this country, and the stereotypes that you brought up earlier. So if we're gonna address those issues in our lifetime, we're gonna to have to do some drastic things. There's a couple of things out there uh, that I think are important to talk about in this discussion, Larry. One is reparations. Uh, there is a movement in this country. I actually participated in the World Conference in Durban, South Africa with some of my colleagues at the Humphrey, uh, Dr. Myers, and others. Uh, That uh, conference led to a U.N. declaration to address issues of economic inequality throughout the world. Uh, Part of that was reparations to uh, uh, countries that had been subjugated to colonialism, uh, including uh, the subjugation of American Indian people, as well as uh, people throughout Europe and Africa and Asia. Uh, And it also included the transatlantic slave trade as a part of that. So this issue of reparations isn't something that is like a crazy idea. And in fact, many people have benefited from reparations. Uh, The Germans uh, actually paid some reparations, not enough to Jewish people, as an example. Japanese Americans had reparations. Uh, but So it's funny that when we talk about reparations for Black people, it's like, oh, this is crazy. It's a crazy idea. I actually don't think it's crazy. I do think that it needs to be structured in a way that actually makes sense and builds assets for African-Americans as opposed to just dollars going into people's pockets and then going out the other side. But I do think reparations does is a practical solution to a, to a problem. Now that isn't the only solution because as I mentioned, that solution is gonna have white backlash. Uh, and so even if we try to put that solution forward even though it does make sense and there's some historic precedent behind it, uh, that, uh, that, that whites in this country actually haven't been able to accept the fact that there has been some institutional things and some systems things that have occurred to create the situation. So there's another idea that um, uh, William Doherty has put out there that I think is, is, is a powerful idea that we are actually pushing pretty hard at prosperity now. And uh, Senator Booker has a bill uh, on it as well. It's, it's called Baby Bonds. And when I first heard this idea, I wasn't all for it, but I I can tell you that I shifted because it made sense and it's a way to get us out of the situation and to alleviate white backlash in the process. So a baby bond really is a bond that would be invested in every baby in this country uh, and that that would be significant enough so that they could make investments when they get 18 years old. And, and they, they could make investments in going to school. They could make investments in uh, getting a business. They could make investments in housing. And that you would you'd have a universal program that actually would have be targeted based on income, meaning uh, people with lower incomes would add, for their kids, their kids would get a higher investment and kids that uh, had, are wealthy or, or, or semi-wealthy would get less investment. The reason I say this makes so much sense is that our analysis shows, and you can go on our website, prosperitynow.org, shows that over time, that this would completely close the gap. And it would it would close the gap on assets in this country for people of color. We've had a program, we have 750,000 children in this country already have children's savings account. In fact, in St. Paul, Melvin Carter, uh, Prosperity Now have worked together to create their college Brown program there. We found over a number of years that just having that child savings account, that $50 investment, that child has a four times more likelihood to graduate from college So somebody invested in them early.
0: Let me just uh, ask you a few questions about the baby bonds because, as you said, Senator Booker gave it some attention, and I, um, it's an idea that you hear kind of um, in Congress, of course, but also in the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Two questions have been raised about it. One is because the bond is invested in in, in the baby bond is invested in bonds, the the um, the asset accumulation in a bond is very little. So, you know, maybe, you know, 1.3, 1.5% a year. So if you had a $1,000, you know, bond, will that even hit $2,000 by the time the child is 18? Um, and is that going to really create the kind of, you know, change that, that you'd like to see?
1: Well, I think you can actually set, uh, the government does this as well as others. You could actually set the rate of the bond, uh, so you could actually make that make sense. Uh, but it really depends on the size of the investment, right? So you said 1.5%. Uh, you know, if it's $20,000 you invest, then it really turns into something. So, you know, using your frame. Uh, my belief is that, Larry, we've got to do something. We've got to do something big. I I I got to make investment. Uh, And we got to make something that doesn't create the kind of white backlash that we see every time we try to make progress on these issues.
0: So, So let me ask you this other question, which is, of course, we've got a very polarized political situation in America now. The funding for the baby bonds, as I understand it, would require annual appropriations by Congress that would be signed by the president. And I think anyone who's followed what's going on in Washington would wonder if there would be that kind of broad bipartisan support for this. I'm not doubting that there aren't Democrats or Republicans agree, but it's, it certainly puts it in a vulnerable position, no? Uh, well, I think that's true, but uh, the same thing was true of
1: social security when it first happened as well. Meaning uh, there, there needed to be uh, a continued resolutions that uh, maintain social security and social security And the issues that happened in the early 60s actually transformed the position of seniors in this country. So I don't think it's so different than other uh, formulas that we've used that we've seen transformation. The same thing was true of EITC. Uh, which has been the uh, largest program that has moved people out of poverty in this country, that uh, has always been uh, something that has been up for uh, political uh, dynamics. It has to be assigned off on pre- periodic basis by the White House. In fact, the last year was the first year they actually made some of these issues more permanent Uh, believe it or not, under a Republican administration in terms of EITC and uh, some of the issues around uh, other tax uh, benefits for low-income people. So it's possible. Uh, But anything that you put out there, you know, I could could trace this back to welfare policy. Now, that was a policy that actually uh, came about through a, a coalition of progressive organizations uh, to actually uh, create more wealth or create more income in communities of color. It had some de- uh, deleterious effects, uh, but, it, but the intentions and the idea of it were good. And so we haven't gotten rid of uh, social service programs. We're trying to do them on the cheap pretty much in America, but we haven't gotten rid of them. So I do think if we put this in place, and the reason that it's universal then it has a constituency of everyone behind it. So if folks try to come and take it, other people that uh, that aren't just people of color will actually stand up for it. And that's the beauty of the baby bond as a, as a strategy.
0: We've got a bunch of questions here. I wanna to go to one of our friends in, who uh, has tuned in, uh, Rebel Tidras, who says, this is the question. Do you believe that the black community should build our own independent private schools, banks, hospitals, and supermarkets. Um,
1: so uh, there is some work. Um, uh, it, so this is a, isn't an easy uh, uh, a question that has an easy answer. Uh, I'll just put it this way: uh, there's, a, there's a necessity for African American people to have gr- to have greater social cohesion if they're going to be successful in negotiating a strategy within this country. John Nash, the noted uh, economist that actually created some of the game theory that we have, actually came up with that Nash equilibrium. And that, uh, that equilibrium says that unless whites see it in their interest to change the conditions of Blacks, I, this is my interpretation. That that, that that things will remain unchanged unless they see it in their own interests. And the same thing is true for African-Americans. Unless African-Americans actually do things that are on their own self interests, uh, they, they won't have enough social cohesion to actually negotiate with the society. So do I think that uh, African-Americans should have their own uh, uh, institutions? Absolutely. I think just like there's white institutions, we're going to have African-American institutions, but do I think that we need a separate society uh, that uh, has differentiations just based on race? I don't believe that's the true. I actually believe in something called targeted universalism, which is that we need to develop targeted strategies depending on how groups are situated to opportunity. And yes, I do think we can do some of that based on race, given the history of discrimination in this country, even meeting the strict scrutiny standards that the federal, uh, that the uh, Supreme Court has set, that in fact, uh, uh, in, in the place of procurement as an example with the state government, it is so horrendous that we do need to take specific steps to point at African-Americans. Uh, but do I think that we need to have uh, just uh, uh, total separate institutions from the majority institutions? I don't think that would work.
0: Question from Dan Durden. What can be done to increase the educational level of African-Americans? So they can become eligible for the better-paying jobs in our economy.
1: Well, I think the first thing is, and I, you know, I think Larry, you know, I was associate superintendent of schools for Minneapolis for a, for a bit, uh, and I saw firsthand how systems uh, that the kids actually weren't put in first place in many instances, and that other interests uh, superseded their interests. And so, I think the first thing we need to do is actually restructure some of the public education systems, and it actually works for kids of color. Uh, the same kid that is in uh, that could be in a Minneapolis school can cross the street and go into a suburban school and actually do better. Uh, that's ridiculous. Uh, that shouldn't happen in our society. And there's forces that maintain the status quo in public education. If you look at public education in the big city through schools throughout this country, that the education isn't working for kids of color, uh, but, but we're spending millions of dollars on education. So we need to do something radically different. Uh, and as we think about this, there's vested interests that wanna maintain what it is that keep things the way they are. Uh, and so in, in order to transform that, uh, if you could have a, a school like Harvest Prep in North Minneapolis, a, a beating all the odds, or, and I could name a few others, uh, and then you go down the street and you have a school that's in the same neighborhood uh, that, that doesn't uh, uh, perform well for those same children, right? Not like they're different kids. They're both public educational institutions, but they're using different methodologies. They're using different approaches. They're engaging the parents. They're ensuring that those, that, that those kids have a methodology that they can actually use and utilize to to learn. So so we know what the answer is. The real question is, do we have the political will uh, to change these
0: current structures for those kids of color? One of my most um, admired and dedicated uh, colleagues at the Humphrey School, Deborah Levinson has a question uh, which is to remind us that homeowners are advantaged by the tax code uh, because they get a break for the interest rates they pay in terms of public policy changes, would you recommend getting rid of the mortgage tax benefit?
1: Yes. Uh, we have a paper on our website that actually talks about this, that we actually need to, to transform the home mortgage. Why wouldn't we give that same benefit to renters, as an example? Why wouldn't we give that same benefit uh, to uh, to folks that are uh, marginalized within our homeless system. So yes, I think that is an unfair structure. We believe that the tax system is upside down uh, in terms of how it benefits wealthy, not just on the mortgage income tax deductions, but on a number of different fronts. And it, if you look at the, uh, the economics, uh, over time, these tax structures have driven uh, the uh, uh, wealth inequality within this country And again, not just for people of color, but for middle-class whites as well.
0: I wanna ask you, we've been talking a lot about wealth and and equity and how to get access and use it. Uh, I wanna just come back to the community developed financial institutions and the work of prosperity now. One part of it is uh, creating access to capital and equity. Mm There are other parts are devoted as I understand it to, to kind of training, to providing um, a, a structure and a framework, so that those who are getting access to the capital have the the literacy, the capacity to use that capital. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. So Prosperity Now is serving as a
1: backbone support organization for forty two. African American led CDFIs called the African American Alliance of CDFIs. And this is the first time in the country's history where uh, you've seen this many financial institutions represent about $3.65 billion in lending that have gotten together and say, we need to work together to, access, to get access to capital to African American people across this country. Uh, the reason I mentioned that, Larry, is because if we're not working at scale, uh, if we're working at every little uh, CFI in the country and they're all working independently, uh, that's going to be a problem. We actually need to have a delivery system of capital. Uh, we need to have a delivery system of technical assistance to those minority businesses. And we need access to markets, and we need to do that together. We're now working with the uh, Alliance of African-American Mayors uh, to develop a a memorandum agreement with Prosperity Now. And part of that will be to do an analysis on cities that have African-American mayors so that we can see how capital flows in those cities. So we can take some of that existing capital in the CDFIs and utilize it in those places that need it. So rebuilding Lake Street as an example, rebuilding University out Avenue, that's gonna take more capital than exists in the current market. Uh, and so how do we help them do that so that we can really create an economic base within those communities of color?
0: For, fo- for folks who are not from Minnesota, and I know there are plenty of you out there, um, Mr. Cunningham has just referenced two of the most prominent, important um, uh, avenues in Minneapolis. Uh, many of them have, um, businesses that are run by black, indigenous, and people of color. Uh, Mr. Cunningham, I wanna ask you about another dimension of the analysis and work you've done. Um, And and let me kind of come to it with uh, the work of Glenn Lowry. Glenn Lowry, who's a conservative economist, um, who's very concerned about, as you are, about the um, relative impoverishment of black Americans has talked about the fact that there is an anti-Black bias and that must be remedied but that the Black community also has its own set of issues and that the Black behavior patterns, as he put it, helps to, in part, explain the economic circumstances that face uh, too many Americans of color.
1: Yeah, I just read that article recently and he talks about two uh, different views. One is the structural view, and the other is the uh, personal view. I, 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 uh, one, I have a lot of respect for <coughs> Mr. Low- uh, Professor Lowry uh, uh, because I think he is a thoughtful uh, person that comes up with thoughtful ideas. At the same time, uh, to deny, uh, for example, that the the conditions by which African American behavior has been uh, uh, created are the structures that we have. Uh, so to say those things are separate, to say somehow, oh, uh, you're supposed to be acting different uh, within a society that has basically said, you're not welcome, you're not wanted, and you're not a part of us. Uh, uh, and we're gonna let you know that in all kinds of different ways. Um, uh, that uh, I think is, is a little bit, uh, a little bit of, uh, I'd say a little facetious on his part to say that in that way when I read the article. Uh, But I do think he has some real points. Do African-Americans need to hold each other and themselves accountable? Absolutely. Uh, Do we need to say what it means and redefine a positive ethos uh, uh, to address the stereotype threats that are out there against us? The only, uh, I shouldn't say the only, but one of the ways that you deal with the issue of stereotype threat And for those that don't know what that is, let me just say stereotype threat is is really a stereotype that gets put upon you in society, and then you either act out on that stereotype uh, or it impedes your performance. Uh, So this is what a stereotype threat is. Uh, And so you can look up social psychology and see it's pretty well documented that when a particular group, whether it be women or people of color, feel like they don't do as well or they won't do as well in a particular test situation, uh, they will underperform in that test situation consistently. And so that's happening in society as a whole for Black people. And so my answer to that is we need a pro people of color orientation, not just an anti-racist orientation. We need to be uh, pro Black people and Black people need to be pro themselves and have a pro ethos as how how we operate. Uh, Otherwise, we will always be the other. We will always be the other than uh, unless we can address that issue. And it's not about just economics. It's also about the issue of human relations. It's about who's in the circle of human concern. It's about all of these issues that actually uh, ensure that we can actually have an inclusive society that works for everyone.
0: If you're interested in uh, what Mr. Cunningham just described, He's got a, a really terrific and provocative article coming out in nonprofit quarterly. It's entitled "Strengthening Our Identity: Rethinking the Path to Black Liberation." Um, Mr. Cunningham, I'm, I'm sure it didn't escape your notice that we've got a Democratic government coming into power in about a week's time now. Um, Joe Biden, uh, who has um, you know quite a diverse cabinet, um, and it clearly tilts in a progressive direction, sympathetic to some of the arguments you've made. The House of Representatives has a narrow Democratic majority. The Democrats have as close a majority, working majority in the Senate as you can have, 50-50 with Vice President uh, Kamala Harris as a tie-breaking vote. What are your hopes? Uh, What do you expect and, and think is feasible for the Democrats in power to take on in the next two years, in the next 100 days? What is it that you want to see?
1: Well, I've mentioned a few of those uh, already. Uh, you know, I'd like to see some baby bond legislation. I'd like to see the study on reparations completed, uh, because I think that there may be some threads in there that we can utilize to address uh, issues of economic uh, inclusion. But I also think, I, one, uh, first of all, let me say, uh, you know, uh, I, I appreciated the uh, president-elect acknowledging that he wouldn't be in that position without Black voters. Uh, because uh, you know, this is a place where African-Americans have come together and actually had held power to elect a president of the United States and have done it before. So this, this idea of uh, Black people aren't powerful Uh, really, I think, has really been uh, addressed with this election. So I'll just say that. But let me say what I'd like to see. I I certainly have uh, participated and been a part of as an individual, not as Prosperity Now, uh, in some of the discussions about policy recommendations. Uh, Some of those uh, include some of the things I've talked about, but there's also the issues of uh, getting bipartisan support for some of these issues coming down the road, because you know we need to be able to come together uh, around some of these issues and reform a middle in this country. If we can't reform a place where we can actually have dialogue, now uh, you know a good friend of mine, Don Shelby in Minnesota, once said, you know there is no moral other side to slavery. There is no moral other side to. Uh, of uh, being uh, 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 negative on civil rights is just no moral other ground. So if that's the place that you come from, I don't think there's gonna be a middle. But I do think there is a middle ground that we can reestablish in this. There is civility and there is this issue of us, of, of, of us having the ability to uh, actually reach conclusions together, even though we may disagree on certain points. And so that's what I really would like to see the president do. I think the president has a duty to bring this country back together. We'll bring this country uh, at least to the point where we can have conversations uh, without it just spilling into uh, civil war in this country. And, and 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 unless he can do that, I, I fear that we are gonna be in a tr- uh, very uh, hurtful place. So the question is not just about what can be done for black people in this country and other BIPOC communities, it's also what can we do ensure that everybody in this country has uh, the ability uh, to take advantage of the opportunities that get created that are are barrier-free.
0: One of the most striking features of uh, some of uh, President-elect Biden's comments have been about diversifying um, the leading institutions in our government. Um, And there has been quite a bit of discussion about the lack of diversity in the Federal Reserve uh, System and Bank there's one um, black uh, Federal Reserve president, uh, Raphael Bostic, who's mm-hmm. the president of the Atlantic uh, Federal Reserve. Um, and I was really struck by an article that Narayana uh, Kochalak-Tota uh, wrote in uh, Bloomberg News, emphasizing the importance of this. He said, Fed officials are too homogenous, too likely to emphasize more empathize more with banks and investors than they do with the broader set of Americans whose well-being they're supposed to defend. Close quote. His point is that it's only by diversifying um, the Federal Reserve leadership, the economists, and those who work there, and the Treasury and other institutions that you're going to get appreciation for some of the the um, the entrenched problems that you've identified and and greater attention. To the kind of structural changes that you uh, have laid out, do you agree with that? It's absolutely.
1: I mean, you know, the the uh, the reality of it is is that um, uh, uh, organizations and uh, uh, communities that are been uh, that are diverse actually have stronger companies, uh, and and actually are more profitable than those that are uh, homogeneous. Uh, and so this has been proven over and over again. The fact that uh, they've held on to this vestiges of of segregation, I would call it, within the Federal Reserve and other institutions is a demonstration that we have a ways to go, Uh, that there are these issues uh, that uh, that continue to uh, hamper our ability to move forward as a country. Uh, and I think the Federal Reserve, being a, uh, one of the most powerful pillars in the country with re- regards to setting monetary policy, and I actually have a lot of hope in Janet Yellen uh, and that peg in Treasury uh, because she was in the Federal Reserve, and and I do think that there is a there is a movement, although uh, a somewhat tedious, there is a movement uh, towards uh, social justice and a change within this country. In fact, public opinion, uh, whites have shifted significantly in the last, since uh, 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 Mr. Floyd was, was killed in Minneapolis. Uh, some of that public opinion has shifted and it is those things that need to happen. I, you know, There have been things that have happened, Larry, that have transformed America. One is we've seen a huge shift uh, with, with gay marriage in this country, something that many people thought would never happen. Uh, We've seen shifts uh, on on a huge magnitude in this country uh, that have been slow in coming, but have been quick when they've been implemented. I think we have the same opportunity here to be a better nation, to be a better place, uh, so that all of my children, my grandchildren, can do as well as your grandchildren. Uh, And that's the kind of place that I want to see. I don't want to see a place where uh, people are taking animus because of the history that has happened even though there's some uh, some justification that people are angry about that. But if we don't create a place where everybody actually can hear their voice and see themselves in the picture, if if, if, if we create a country where only some of us see ourselves in the picture and others don't, that's not the place that I wanna be in. And I don't think that's the place where most Americans wanna be.
0: Yeah, I appreciate your, um, your hopefulness. Um, let me give you two examples of um, policies that the Federal Reserve has been part of. Um, In 1977, um, Congress created the Community Reinvestment Act which was meant to really, uh, to end redlining which would effectively prevented uh, blacks and people of color from owning and getting mortgages and owning houses in in white neighborhoods. Um, And the history of the feds regulation of that along with two other regulatory bodies has been, I think by all measures, not that impressive. Um, And, you know, you kind of go through that, there's been talk recently about changing it, but if you look at the history, um, you'd have to be real optimist to think there's gonna be a change. As you know, the the, um, Congress passed the rescue package and included the Paycheck Protection Program that was supposed to get loans out to businesses it turns out, and this won't be surprising given what you've said, Black businesses were last in line and most hurt by the coronavirus and its shutdown of the economy. How are we going to change those sort of entrenched patterns? Do you have a strategy in mind for changing it?
1: I do. And again, I've talked about this. I actually think we, we have to use a targeted universal strategy. And when I say that, we need to develop universal goals that we can all agree on. I want your kids to do really well and be an international baccalaureate and et cetera, but I also might want my kids to do well. And so, but they might not be similarly situated. So we will have to target for those communities and those places and those people so that they can all uh, participate. So I'll just put it like this. If we're all in the mall together uh, and we all want the opportunities on the third floor we may need different vehicles to get there. Some of us can take the escalator. Some of us run up the down escalator and you get to the top of the escalator and they say, well, if you made it up the down escalator, all your people should. Other people have to take the stairs. Uh, and then if you're in a wheelchair, uh, you're gonna need an elevator. You're not gonna get to the third floor to the opportunity. So, so these are strategies. Each one of those are different strategies to get to the third floor. Now, nobody argues about building an elevator because we all benefit that elevator not just people that are in a wheelchair uh and so the question for us is not everybody's situated similarly and so we need universal goals and we need targeted strategies to get to our goal and i think if we use that uh uh, philosophy then we can create a world in a place where we that 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 whites don't think they're, they're being disadvantaged where people of color are actually getting the support and the targeted support that they need in order to participate at the same level that whites have had for, for 400 years.
0: You know, I think uh, we're at a point where there's obviously such division and, and, and loss of hope, to be honest with you. Um, and we also have a, a, a fairly uh, thin level of understanding of policy and how to pass policy and how to build an enduring over time development of that policy. And I think you, and given your your really very um, um, wide set of experiences, are plotting a, a positive, hopeful direction. It's a direction that lands us somewhere between the the ideological we can't do anything because government shouldn't be involved, and and I think the overreach of of those who are calling for socialism and you know, the most dramatic sort of changes that are not going to pass. Um, and and so I would just say in closing, and, and I'll let you have the last word, mm-hmm. what you're laying out is a, in my view, a kind of progressive market strategy, um, along with a, an awareness and a commitment, defining a, a place for reasonable people in both parties uh, to find common ground. And I don't know, I'm not seeing too much of that. So I really wanna thank you for joining us because I think it's such an important uh, journey and work that you're doing. Well, I
1: just wanna say uh, thank you and uh, thank you to the Humphrey School for having me. I'd say we've been at uh, darker periods in our history. Uh, You know, we did fight a civil war in this country and uh, it was the bloodiest war in our history. And so we, we've been in a darker place uh, than we are now. And I I do think that without hope, uh, then all you have is despair. Uh, And so I want to, I want to say, it's not just a hope based on frivolous, uh, kind of, uh, I'm just happy, smiley, smiley face. I think it is hope built on the fact that I know we have the human capacity. Uh, We have the ability to actually Uh, transform America. And I've seen it happen. There are things that have happened in my lifetime that I never thought would have happened. Uh, And so I think we can do it again. I think uh, I'm looking forward to working with uh, President Biden and his administration. I'm looking forward to working with uh, the Congress on both sides to make this country uh, the great country that it can be and has the potential to be. Thank you, Larry.